Thank you for choosing Miniaturist of Baptist Church podcast. We hope you benefit from this message. If you'd like to learn more about Miniaturist of Baptist Church, please visit our website at miniaturistachurch.org. series that I've been doing about those things which captivate our hearts that move us in directions that we otherwise not, would not move. And so in this series, and I'll tell you the backdrop of it, in this series that we are coming now in the self-study process with our congregation of completion of our self-study. So tomorrow night, and just pray for us, our transition team will be meeting and we will be concluding everything that we've been processing these last three, four months that I've been with you. And we have come to some sobering points. We have come to some clarifying points. We've come to some rejoicing points. But I think we've also come to a very serious sense that we as a church need to have a compelling vision. And every individual of your life needs to have a compelling vision for your life. Even as senior citizens, we need to have a compelling vision. Something that gets us up in the morning. Something that floats our boat. Something that puts a little click in our step. Something that says, God is, and that God is with me. And so this morning as we come to this portion of scripture about a compelling vision of seeing something better. I want us to focus upon seeing God's power at work among us. So Ephesians, the first chapter, uh, let me get it here, and beginning with verse 11 of the first chapter. The way you remember where Ephesians is, is giants eat peas and corns. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. <laughs> Giants eat peas and corn. That's just the way it is. If you've been to Sunday school, you ask what you learn in Sunday school. So Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. In Him, Christ, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him, who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which 
He has called you. The riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparable great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him, Christ, to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now, Father, I pray for the divine assistance of your Holy Spirit in making the meaning clear from your scriptures. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may have heard the story of a doctor and his patient. And after the doctor visited with his patient, he wrote out a prescription for his patient, and he handed it to his patient, and here were the words. Go to the Grand Canyon. You need to see something bigger than yourself. Yeah. And that's our challenge this morning. In our text this morning, Paul is praying that the church at Ephesus would see the greatness of God. And that's my prayer for you, that you would see the greatness of God today. Not tomorrow, next, next week, next month, but today that you would see the greatness of God. Don't get me wrong. Ephesus was and is a great and beautiful place. And I've been there. And I have some pictures I want to show you. So this is the library at Ephesus. And the ruins, this is in, in, in western Turkey. And I went just before COVID. This was my hike when I retraced the footsteps of Paul. And I traveled a thousand miles retracing his steps in Greece, in, in northern Turkey, in western Turkey, southern Turkey. And, uh, and as I retraced the footsteps of Paul, I came to Ephesus and I was there for three days. And on my journey of retracing the footsteps of Paul, I hiked over 200 miles. I hiked by myself. I did this whole trip with just a backpack. And uh, I love the Apostle Paul. And Ephesus was a major city in his day in Asia Minor. And it was the place that he brought the gospel, but it did not come up without some difficulty. So if you look at the next picture, uh, this is the, 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 the stone that dedicated the library of, of, in Ephesus. If you look at the next picture, this is the amphitheater where Paul was nearly dragged into and beaten to death because he stood up against the, the temple of Artemis, the, the, the goddess of fertility. And so it was there that they had the idol makers, and Paul began to preach, and many people came to Christ, and these makers of the idols, their industry was threatened. And so they wanted Paul arrested. And Paul, would, he wanted to go into this very amphitheater and defend himself. But his friends dragged him away and said, if you do that, Paul, we'll never see you again. And then the next slide is, I hiked up from there. There is a, um, a grotto, it's called Mary's House. 
And there's good historical evidence that Mary, the mother of our Lord Jesus, that when the persecution started in Jerusalem, that the church leaders relocated to Ephesus. And there's up on the top of this hill uh, a, a grotto dedicated to Mary. But hiking up the hill, there's a 40-foot statue of the goddess Artemis. And this was given to Turkey by the United States government after World War II. Can you imagine our government giving an idol statue to celebrate our friendship with an Islamic country, which is here? And so this is a reminder of the kind of place that Paul came. And he wanted to be sure that these people at Ephesus knew the greatness of God. So you can close down the picture there. Um, my only hope in being able to capture the greatness of God is to rely on the authority of Scripture to speak in ways that I can never speak. I don't rely on my limited words or my human understanding at this moment. I'm relying on the Holy Spirit to capture our imaginations, to capture our minds and our hearts, to see God's greatness. And I want us to see God's greatness that we might have a compelling vision for our lives and for the life of this, His church. A compelling vision requires us to believe in something and even someone who is bigger than ourselves, such as that doctor with his patient. You need to see the Grand Canyon. You need to see something that is bigger than yourself. And this in itself is a good case, a good reason to believe in God. Jesus had several compelling visions. In the presence of religious people, he said, it is not the healthy that needs a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to invite the virtuous, but to call sinners to repentance. So Jesus had this vision, this, this boat floater, this passion inside of him that he wanted people to see the greatness of God and to know God in a personal way. In our text, Paul was unfolding the greatness of God, his grandeur, his transcendence that comes from the revelation of the Son. He was writing to the church so that they would see something greater, to see themselves from God's perspective. That's a great gift. That's an impossible thing to, uh, for us to achieve by our own effort. But the Holy Spirit can enable us to see ourselves as God sees us. His compelling vision is for this church is to see the greatness of God at work in them. That's why Paul wrote this letter to that specific place for those specific people that they would see the greatness of God at work in them. And that's my prayer for you. That you would see the greatness of God at work in you. So my focus this morning is this. A compelling vision is accompanied by three things. So I'm not going to go through all the renewal reminders of last week, but the three things, the three new things this week for a compelling vision involves complexity, intercession, 
and then simplicity. So how can we possibly move from complexity to simplicity? I'm going to show you this in the end. It's not a magic trick, all right? It is very doable. So the complexity of, of a compelling vision is in verses 11 through 15. Verses 11 uh, uses some pretty complex language in describing how God, in his greatness, is at work in the formation of his people. Listen carefully to a rough translation of this verse. We were named. So you say, well, what's so exciting about that? Well, it's the passive tense. We were named. Something that was done for us. We were named. Here's the complexity. We were named. Um, and then it gets even more challenging. Having been predestined. Again, it's the passive voice. It's something that was done for us. Or, if you cannot fathom the word predestined, is having been known beforehand. God knew you before you were here right now and today. He is independent of time. And he can see all things from beginning, middle to end as though it was one sphere. So he knows all things. Now that's complex. According to his purpose of all things that work according to the counsel of his will. Well, who makes up the counsel of God? Well, it's our triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. This is the counsel of God. Do I understand the depth and the complexity of the Trinity? Absolutely not. But that does not deny that God is and that He has counsel among Himself. Um, if you go on in verse 11, um, so which is it? Does God choose his, his favorites? Does He predestine us? Or in freedom of will, do we choose Him? That's a complex question. And I just know this, that in the scale, in God's scale of love, He puts His thumb on the scale. And as many as receive Him, the Bible says, He gives them the right or the authority to become the children of God. So, as many as receive, that's a choice of my will. But I believe it's the love of God that tips the scale and says, this is the best choice that you could possibly. But it's still a choice that each one of us has to make ourselves. So when it comes to the complexities of predestination and the foreknowledge of God, I find myself tiptoeing, being careful not to insert myself into places I should not go. Verse 12 moves us forward. The phrase here denotes purpose and results intended from verse 11. That's what we are facing as a congregation. What is our purpose? Why do we exist? Why did God place us here? For what purpose are we here? <clears throat> That's the existential question for every individual in life. Who am I? 
If there is a God, how can I know Him? And what is my purpose in life? Why do I exist? And those existential questions are all answered in the Gospel. God has a purpose for us. He created us for a purpose. God's intention is for us who believe is that we would be a praise of His glory. That's God's purpose. It's like saying, this is my trophy, Will. This is my trophy, Mary. This is my trophy, Sky. And they exist because they bring honor to my name. And that's God's intention for us. That we exist to bring honor and glory to Him. The most famous question of the Westminster Confession is this. What is the chief end of man? And the answer is man, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. How do we become a praise of God's glory? Verse 13. Having heard the word of truth, the good news of your salvation, in whom, also having believed, you were sealed by the promise of the Holy Spirit. So here again, the grammar is very important. The tense is very important. Having heard, having believed, are both active tenses. So it's not something that's done for us. It's something that we engage in doing ourselves. So belief is a choice. I can choose to believe or not to believe. But the scripture says, by faith we understand how the world is framed together by the word of God. So believing is the first step to understanding. And so in this thing, having heard, having believed, is something that we initiate, that we respond to, that we are attracted to, that we yield our lives to. It's something that is a choice of the will. Faith comes by hearing, but believing is a choice of the will. Once that choice is made, having believed, you are sealed by the promise of the Holy Spirit. So in other words, that at that moment, a person yields their life to Christ. There is like this seal that comes from heaven and says, that person's mine. And I'm going to hold on to that person. And so in the wonderful part of this sealing is an aorist passive tense. This is something that was done for us. And the tense carries the idea that it is a completed action with ongoing results. So it's kind of like a baseball player that goes through batting practice and practices and practices and finally is able to become an accomplished batter. And once he steps to that plate, everything that that batter has learned beforehand comes into play at that moment at that plate. And that's the impact of this tense. It's something that was accomplished in the past, but it has ongoing results in the present hour. So in other words, everyone who believes can be assured of their salvation. Do you know that in the Roman Church, Roman Catholic Church, they do not teach the assurance of salvation? There is no guarantee. That's why maybe purgatory is the other option. 
But the scriptures teach assurance of salvation. That everyone who believes can be assured that their names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And I like to say that Lamb's Book of Life has indelible ink. It's not going to be erased out. It's there. And it's there because we believe. So the first part of this compelling vision, there, is, there are complexities to it. There's things that we might not fully understand as we begin. But if you'll trust God and take that step, He will reveal Himself to you in great and powerful ways. The second part of a compelling vision here in this passage of Scripture has to deal with intercession. Paul prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, would give these believers a spirit of wisdom, knowing what to do. Have you ever been in that place where you didn't know what to do? We've all been there. I've said one time, Lord, just this one time, could we have an audible conversation? And then after that, I will never ask you again. And the Lord kind of says, no, it doesn't work that way. Because if you do it one time, you'll want it done a second time. And if you do it a second time, you'll want it a third time. And I can't do that. You have to trust me, is the implication that is there. So the spirit of wisdom that Paul prays that God would give them, a spirit of wisdom of knowing what to do, of revelation, that is insight into the holy. And here's the kicker, that he would give him, them the knowledge of of God. Can you imagine? Me. Little old me. I got married I weighed 118 pounds. Skin and bones. When I went through seminary, I lived on one dollar a day for food. And I ate raisins and orange juice and peanut butter. And I was skinny as a rail when Jackie married me. She said, I'm going to fatten you up. And she has. She's done a good job. But little old me, that God is going to impart the knowledge of God. And he does that. That's the wonderment of intercession. That if you follow him with passion, and if you follow him with your heart, that he will give you the knowledge of God. And then verse 18, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. And that's where we get photo light. Fotizo. It's something that shines. That's our lives. Because of Jesus in us, we shine. And because of who He is, we can have a vision of sharing this fotizo with others, this light where we get the photosynthesis type of thing. For what purpose? So that you'll know what is the hope of His calling. His calling. Capital H, Christ calling. So you'll know what the wealth of the glory of his inheritance in the saints is. This is a lot of things to know. And after this many years is following him, I guess that my prayer is still that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be difficulties. There's going to be discouragements. But the wonderful thing is, it's the wealth of His glory. Verse 19, so that you know the overwhelming, exceeding greatness of His power. 
according to the power of the might of his strength. I can't put my head around that. But that was Paul's prayer of intercession for them. And that's my prayer for you. Is that you would know the overwhelming, exceeding greatness of his power. According to the power and the might of your strength? No. Of his strength working in you. For me, all of this sounds very complex. For God, who is all-powerful, it's simple. (laughs) Can you imagine? For us, complexity. For God, simplicity. And so the simplicity of a compelling vision is in verses 20 through 23. The simplicity is this. Believe that God has power to bring the dead back to life. Is that possible? Well, as Christian people, we know that Jesus brought Lazarus back to life. We know that the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. We know that from the promise that we too shall live again. And so believe that God's power is far above all rulers, all authorities, all powers, all dominions, every name, not only in this age, but in the age to come, will bow their knee to Jesus as Lord and Savior. Believe that God has placed His Son over the church. Verses 22. He has put everything in subjection beneath His feet and appointed Him, Christ, as supreme head of the church, which is His body. So the church is a theocracy. It's not a democracy. We don't choose what to be done. We have given opportunity to discern the will of God. But the church is not a democracy. It's a theocracy. It's where God is king and ruler and he has appointed his son as the supreme lord of his church. From head to toe, from top to bottom, Jesus has everything in his church under his control. Amen? Yeah. That's exciting. Uh, Do you believe this? Say amen. Uh, Yeah, I believe it. Finally, believe that in his church, because Jesus is the head of the church, there is the fullness of everything who himself receives the entire fullness of God. I mean, folks, you can't wrap your head around this stuff. But it's there. It is so wonderful, it is so full, it's so complete, it's so unimaginable, and yet it's so real. So I'm going to tell you the story of somebody who had a very complex idea. And then how it got reduced to the simplicity of a pill. Can you imagine? So, let me indulge you as I conclude. And each week in this series, I have been concluding with the story of somebody who saw something better. And so the first week I started with Chester Carlson, who is the founder of zoography, which we know as the photocopier, and how that changed the world. Last week I talked about Sabina Wernbrand, this pastor's wife, who suffered for the cause of Christ in in Romania. Uh, And then out of that came the Voice of the Martyrs, which has a $40 million annual budget 
to help the suffering church around the world today. A great story. Today I want to tell you the story about Genentech. And Genentech is a story of an entrepreneur, an attorney, uh, a scientist, and an attorney, and how they had this idea that changed the world. It has changed your life, and you may never even ever heard of Genentech. Four men who love science discovered how to create and market human insulin, human growth hormones, and the host of life-saving pharmaceuticals for treating cancer. The late Robert Swanson was the first who saw the commercial potential of recombinant molecular biology. That's a fancy way of saying he saw the potential of taking a cell apart and then reconstructing the cell with different components. And so it's called recombinant molecular biology. The late, and that's the complexity. So I'm going to talk about the complexity part here. The late Robert Swanson, he saw it first. He had graduated from MIT in 1970 with an undergraduate degree in chemistry and a graduate degree in management. He had some idea that chemistry and management were going to come together. At the, at the end of 1974, he joined a venture capital firm as a junior partner. He was 26 years old when he started this adventure. One year after working for the firm, Swanson was told that he should seek employment elsewhere. Oh, what a bummer. What a bummer. I mean, he's a bright light. He's got the education. He's got the motivation. He's got the vision. And the company that he's working for says, I'm sorry, Bob, it's just not working out. So he got what I call the left foot of fellowship. You know, that's happened to me. And it will happen to anybody that really wants to go forward in their life. At some point, somebody's going to say, you can't work here. And that's okay. God is God. So one year after working for the firm, he was given the left foot of fellowship. Convinced of the commercial potential of recombinant DNA, Bob Swanson began to cold call scientists who had attended this conference on DNA theory. So he was not dissuaded. The main goal of this conference was to address the biohazards of this new technology. Swanson found without exception that all the scientists at the conference believed that recombinant DNA had promise, but it would require a decade or two before it could become commercially viable. Swanson did it in two years. Two years. In March of 1976, about four months from the time he was let go from his former employer, Swanson went back to the firm that fired him and presented a six-page business plan that requested $100,000 for launching Genentech, which would become the company. In the end, 40% of the company was sold for $47 billion. Wow. So that's the story of how Genentech started. But it takes four people. In 1972, Stan Cohen is the next picture up. Is that Stan? No, that's not. There's Stan. He's a, he's a research scientist guy. A medical doctor and a molecular biologist at Stanford University and Herb Boyer, you got his Herb's picture up there? Here's Herb. And footnote, 
Herb really liked beer. And so Bob Swanson found out about this, and he took Herb Boyer out for a beer. And they ended up starting this whole relationship. But he found out the secret to Herb Boyer's heart. He's a microbiologist with a PhD in bacteriology at the University of California in San Francisco. And they met at this conference in Honolulu. In a flash, it struck them that they might have between them the making of a method for joining and cloning DNA mo molecules. They began research in January 1973, and in March of 1973, January to March, they had recombined DNA molecules. Amazing. An amazing breakthrough in chemistry and science. Herb Boyer's original career path was to be a medical doctor. He had applied to a number of medical schools and was rejected each time. He never became a medical doctor. His initial research was on bacteria and enzymes that cut up and destroy foreign DNA entering the bacterial cell. So he probably did more for medicine than he ever could have done as a medical doctor. So now we have an attorney, and I don't have Thomas Kiley's picture, but I do have some law books. So that's all that you get this morning. You just get a little reminder that at any point in your life, you're going to have to talk with an attorney at any point. So Thomas Kiley eventually became Genentech's full-time legal counsel. In order to grasp the concept, this is the complexity part of a compelling vision. In order to grasp the concept of gene splicing, Thomas Kiley read Molecular Biology of the Gene. So if anyone is going to do something with their lives, eventually it will require you to read outside your comfort level. And that's how I started reading this whole story. Somebody said to me, he says, Will, I know you like the Come to Jesus books, but you've got to start reading outside your comfort level. And so I figured, well, you know what, if an attorney can read this whole thing about molecular biology, I can read something about molecular biology. And I did. And I read the whole story of Genentech. And so with a keen understanding of patent law, molecular biology, and the principles of evidence, Kyrie was able to clearly attribute the scient which scientists contributed to the, dis to the discoveries and the inventions that took place in recombining molecular cells. This placed Genentech on solid legal footings, which proved to be invaluable in the future legal claims of contributing scientists and their institutions. And I think one of his cases went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And because of Thomas Kiley's vision of being able to document evidence, Genentech was able to sustain through the courts. Recombinant genetic engineering is complex. Taking a pill is simple. And that's what they did. They made pills for human insulin. They made pills for human growth. They made pills for treat treating cancer. They made all sorts of pills. And all that you and I have to do under prescription is take a pill. It's that simple. And a compelling vision, once it gets a hold of your heart, 
It's just that simple. I know what I'm going to do. And I know how I'm going to do it. The greatness of God is complex. Believing in Him is simple. Amen? It is. Let's stand. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Minnetrista Baptist Church is a community of Christ followers who value preaching and teaching scripture, biblical obedience, community, prayer, and evangelism. If you'd like to learn more about Minnetrista Baptist Church, please visit our website at minnetristachurch.org and come by for a Sunday morning service. We'd love to meet you.